a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. And I find that to be extraordinarily true. Every time I add more discipline to my life, I find that I get more freedom. I'll give you an example. I'm a kind of wannabe jazz pianist. And the more that I study the scales and the more that I practice the scales, the more I can express my soul by improvising away from them or improvising with them. Welcome to the Daily Authors Podcast, a daily podcast all about books and the authors who gave them life. Each episode, your host interviews a new brilliant author as they reveal inside information about their incredible books and inspiring lives. Now, here's your host, Aaron Gendel. Hey, Aaron Gendel here. I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Daily Authors Podcast. It means so, so much to me. And maybe you've been thinking about writing a book of your own. And if so, do not wait. The world is hurting and needs your help. It needs your book. I would love to help you on your journey to write your book. So simply email me at Aaron at dailyauthors.com and I'd love to hear about your book idea. Now enjoy the show. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Glenn Livingston, for joining me on the Daily Authors Podcast today. So, so excited to talk to you about your book, Never Binge Again, How Thousands of People Have Stopped Overeating and binge eating, and stuck to the diet of their choice by reprogramming themselves to think differently about food. Thanks again, Dr. Livingston, for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. You'll, you'll have to call me Glenn because the doctor thing is going to get old. <laughs> Sounds good, Glenn. Thank yeah. you so much. Well, before we start talking about your book, Never Binge Again, would you mind just telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself and your work and what you've got going on right now? Well, I am a psychologist by training, but that's not really what I do now. I had a serious eating problem myself in my youth and all the way until I was about 42 or 43 years old. I'm 55 now. And it all started when I was about 17. And I figured out that if I could work out for two or three hours a day, that I could eat whatever I wanted to. Mm -hmm. You know, whole pizzas, whole boxes of muffins, whole boxes of donuts, six to 10 chocolate bars, whatever you can imagine. I always joke that (laughs) If you happen to stop at a 7-Eleven and they were out of Pop-Tarts, that's because I was there before you. <laughs> so, so, but I, I was thin. I, I was, um, you know, I'm 6'4", I'm reasonably muscular, so I, I stayed relatively thin. And it was not a problem, except that I turned myself into a big eating, exercising, sleeping, and pooping machine and didn't do much else. But when I got older, and I was 22, 23, I was married. I was in graduate school. I had to commute two hours each way. I was seeing patients. I had master's thesis and a dissertation to write. I didn't have the time to work out, but I apparently still did have the time to binge because I couldn't stop eating the way that I was eating. And I did a lot of different things about it. I mean, I got a lot fatter. My triglycerides went way up. They were over 1,000 at one point. Doctors were telling me I was going to die a young man if I didn't do something about it. And What I thought to do about it at that time was what most psychologists would think to do about it at that time. I said to myself, well, I must be trying to fill a hole in my stomach because there's a hole in my heart. And I got to figure out what that hole in my heart is. And if I can figure that out and nurture myself, then I could essentially love myself then. And I wouldn't need to do this anymore. And I went to psychologists and psychiatrists and I took medication and I went to Overeaters Anonymous for a couple of years and everything helped a little. Um, I would get thin for a little while, then I would get fatter. Then I get thin for a little while, and then I get fatter. And eventually, there were three things that happened that flipped the paradigm from love yourself thin to 
take control like an alpha wolf takes control of his pack when he's being challenged for leadership. I'll tell you what those three things were. First one was because I never commuted and I worked at home after graduate school. I had a lot of time on my hands and my wife traveled for business. So I had two careers. I was a clinical child and family therapist and I built a large practice in Long Island, but I also did a lot of consulting for industry, mostly big food, big pharma. And in the big food industry, I saw what was happening in terms of how they were targeting our lizard brain. They were engineering these hyperpalatable food-like substances, which were concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins. Mm -hmm. And they're all designed to hit your bliss point without giving you the nutrition to feel satisfied. And I, I remember asking one of the VPs of marketing for a major food bar manufacturer who happened to also be my friend. And I said, could you tell me how did this company really make money? And he said, Glenn, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed, but we took the vitamins out of the bar because they were too expensive and they were making it taste bad. So we took the vitamins out of the bar hmm. and we put the money into the packaging instead. Wow. And we made the packaging very vibrant and colorful. And it turns out in nature, a diversity of vibrant colors signals a diversity of nutrients that are available. Think of a crisp green salad with blueberries and carrots and you know mm -hmm. red tomatoes. And that color appeals to our evolutionary brain because it's supposed to signal nutrients that are available. But in this case, and I don't mean to single out this particular company because it goes on all across the industry, they were faking us out. So there are, you know, are billions of dollars that go into engineering these things. And then there's a whole chunk of money that goes into making us think that we need them to survive. Mm -hmm. um, then the addiction treatment industry is saying, you can't resist even if you want to. The best you can do is abstain one day at a time. And there's not really evidence for that. The evidence is actually the other way. So those things taken together seemed like overwhelming forces, mostly driven by profit, that had nothing to do with whether my, my mama loved me enough or you know, I was in a bad marriage or whatever. It, it had to do with the fact that they were targeting my lizard brain. And that's, that's the kind of brain stem or the midbrain where one of the earliest evolved parts of the brain. And when it sees something in the environment, it doesn't know love. It says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill. That's what the lizard brain is thinking. It's the upper brain that says, well, wait a minute, what impact is that going to have on the people that I love? What impact is it going to have on my tribe and family? What about my work? What about my long-term goals? What about weight loss and fitness and all that kind of thing? Or to say nothing about creativity and music and spirituality and art. That's all in the upper brain. That's where we think of, everything we think of as us is really up here. This is just eat, mate, or kill. It also happens to be the part of the brain that's responsible for feast or famine, for fight or flight, for emergency response. And so what's happening is that industry is hijacking our lizard brains, having nothing to do with love, so that every time you're digging into the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, there's some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache who's laughing all the way to the bank, right? So, so that's overwhelming. That's not psychology. That is physiology. That is profiteering. That has nothing to do with what my parents did. Then. I did this big study for myself. I was getting paid a lot of money to do these big studies, so I knew how to do them. And in the days when the internet clicks were cheap, I got 40,000 people over the course of about five years to take a survey. And what I asked them in the survey was, what foods can't you stop eating once you start? 
and what is stressing you out in your life. I also asked some personality variables that it turned out not to be that relevant. What I found was people who were lonely or brokenhearted or depressed tended to overeat chocolate. And that described me to a T because I was not <laughs> in a happy marriage and I was kind of depressed and I was overwhelmed. And my binges always started with chocolate. They moved on to boxes of pizza and, you know, kind of sugar salt addiction to go back and forth. But if I, if I didn't have chocolate, I wouldn't binge. I found out that people who are stressed at work tend to binge on chips and pretzels and crunchy, salty things. And people who hmm. are stressed at home tend to binge on pasta and bread and bagels and chewy, soft, starchy things. Now, these aren't perfect correlations and there are overlaps and everything like that, but it was an interesting finding. Yeah. Before I started to go out and do anything publicly about this, I decided that I was going to call my mom. I don't know if I mentioned I'm from a family of 17 psychotherapists. Oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. And, and if something breaks in the house, everybody knows how to ask it, how it feels, but nobody knows how to, how to fix it. So my mom was a therapist and I figured this would make sense to her, this pattern. I said, mom, you know, I know I'm in a bad marriage and I'm, you know, unhappy and it makes sense. I'm lonely and depressed. And so this is the statistical pattern that I found. What set this up in my past? I figure maybe if I know what, what happened on a deep level, then I'll be able to beat it. And she gets this horrible look on her face. She says, I'm so sorry, honey. And I said, mom, it's okay. Whatever it is, it's 40 years ago. This was back when I was about 42. Whatever it is, it's 40 years ago. I forgive you. I just want to get better. And so she said, well, you know, honey, when you were one year old in 1965, my father, your grandfather had just gotten out of jail and I had idolized him and I had no idea he was doing these things, but he was guilty and my whole world fell apart. At the same time, your dad, my husband, was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was terrified. I, you know, we, we were working on having another one on the, on the way. You were one year old. I was going to be an army widow with two small kids and no job. And I was terrified. And so half the time when you came running to me for love or food or a hug or to play, I didn't have that normal motherly interaction to give you. So I kept a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup and I put it in the refrigerator by the floor and I'd say, go get your Bosco. And you'd go crawling over to the Bosco. You'd open the refrigerator. You would take out the bottle. You would open the cap. You would suck on the bottle and go into a chocolate sugar coma. And then I wouldn't have to worry about you. Wow. She says, I'm so sorry. And so Aaron, if this were a movie, if we were in a movie, at that point, mom and I would have a big hug and a big <laughs> cry, right? And I would never have trouble with chocolate again because if that psychological insight, if I finally healed the hole in my heart, then everything would be okay. But do you know that my chocolate eating actually got worse? Hmm. Wow. I mean, we, we had a hug and a cry and we, it, was a good, it was a really good conversation to have. I could forgive myself better. I could forgive my mom. I learned all kinds of things about her and deepened our relationship. It was a good conversation to have. But, but the chocolate eating got worse because I found there was this crazy little voice in my head. I'm not a schizophrenic. I'm talking about the voice of rationalization that everybody has. There's this little voice in my head and it would say something like, hey, Glenn, you know what? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough. And she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can find the love of your life and make everything better, you're going to have to keep on binging on chocolate. Yippee, <laughs> let's go get some right now. And oh, so this was when everything started to turn around for me. And it wasn't instantaneous. But basically, first of all, I said, okay, 
maybe it's not about putting out the fire. Maybe it's about containing it in a fireplace and stopping that little voice that tries to poke holes in the fireplace. And that voice of justification is poking holes in the fireplace. You can have a raging fire. If the fire is the emotion, you can have a raging fire in the middle of your living room. If you have a well-contained fireplace, then there is nothing to worry about. It becomes the center of hearth and home. People gather around it. They talk. They make memories. It warms the house. It's a good thing. If there's even one hole in the fireplace and one ash gets out, the whole house can burn down. And it turns out there's this voice of justification where you, you'll say, for example, I will never eat chocolate during the week again. And then on a Wednesday, you're at Starbucks and you're standing in front of a chocolate bar and you hear this voice in your head that says, you know, you worked out hard enough today. Mm-hmm. You're not going to gain any weight. And you'll be a little wired, but you can sleep it off tomorrow morning. So go ahead and have the chocolate bar. You can start tomorrow. It doesn't matter. And we all have that voice of justification. It takes a whole bunch yeah. of different forms. And I figured at that point that it would be a hell of a lot easier and faster to recognize and disempower that voice of justification than to figure out how to put out the fire. And I shouldn't be trying to put out the whole fire anyway, because emotions are part of, part of life. Now, I'd also been reading a lot from a guy named Jack Trimpey who works with drugs and alcohol. And he talks about taking charge of your lower brain also for drugs and alcohol. The, the difference is with drugs and alcohol, you can quit them entirely. Whereas with food, you got to take the lion out of the cage, walk around the block a few times a day. <laughs> yeah. so, so that helped me to crystallize this understanding that, you know what? I just have to take charge. And this is not without parallel. There are other biological functions of the body which create very strong biological urges, yet I'm constantly and confidently in charge. I could have to pee really badly in the middle of an interview, right? I don't at the moment, but (laughs) if I did, Aaron, I would still finish the interview with you because my bladder would say, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. And I would say, not right now. You'll wait your turn. I promise I will take care of this. It's an authentic need, but not right now because I'm a civilized member of society. I'm not going to just, I'm not going to drop chow and pee right here. So I was taking charge. My bladder doesn't control me. It's a biological urge. It's an authentic urge. Same thing with my testicles. I can see a really pretty girl outside. I live on the beach. I can see a really pretty woman outside and my testicles say, go get her. Go get her right now. But you don't, you don't run up and kiss someone like that in our civilized society, right? You have to approach in a particular way at a particular time. And I'm actually not really that good at that. I'm a little shy, so it's not going to happen. <laughs> but, but, um, but the point is, our bodies generate very powerful urges all the time, and we're expected to control them. Why is it any different with food? So at this point, I have to tell you something embarrassing. This sophisticated psychologist who's done tens of millions of dollars of research and um, you know, have all these credentials and publications... I tried everything I could to get better with food. It didn't work. What worked for me was this. I decided to call my inner lizard brain my inner pig. I'm not talking about real pigs. I'm talking about a concept. I just decided that was going to be my pig. Mm -hmm. I decided to draw very clear lines like I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. And so that I would know healthy from unhealthy behavior and healthy from unhealthy thoughts. If I heard any voice whatsoever in my head that said I should have chocolate on a Wednesday, I said, well, I don't want that. My pig does. 
my pig is squealing for pig slop. Chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. And I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. <laughs> this was all in my head. I was going to keep this totally private. It wasn't a miracle, but this very crude, primitive way of approaching things would wake me up at the moment of impulse and give me those extra microseconds to remember who I was and how I wanted to be around that particular food and why I made the rule in the first place. It, it's like I jumped up from my lizard brain to my neocortex is really what happened. And what that did for me was it would, it would wake me up. It told me that I'm not powerless. It told me that I don't have a chronic progressive mysterious disease that I can't control. This is not some unusual mysterious force. This is a legitimate hijacking of my survival drive by industry because most people don't binge on broccoli. They're going to binge on you know, pizza and, and all that kind of stuff, things that didn't exist in, in evolution. It's concentrated forms of, of pleasure. And there's nothing wrong with having those things if you can control it. And I realized that I could make a choice. Now, sometimes I made the wrong choice. It took a while for me to, to create rules that I really wanted to abide by. And, but at least I knew that it wasn't hopeless and it wasn't powerless. And that was miraculous for me. Once I realized that, and once I realized that I was making the rules and I could make any rule that I wanted to, I realized there was no point to breaking my own rules. And slowly but surely, I stopped breaking them. I lost the weight. I kept a journal in this for eight years. It was going to be a private matter at that point. I decided, okay, my, my study didn't work. I'm not going to be a public doctor for eating disorders or anything. I'm just going to get better. I'll keep doing what I'm doing in marketing and psychology, and, and that's it. Around 2015, I was getting divorced, and I was a minor partner in a publishing company. And the CEO said to me, Glenn, you know, we really need to publish a book and market it ourselves so that everybody knows how good we are at marketing. And we could do things with, with your book that, you know, other publishers wouldn't let us get behind. And so could you write a book? And I said, well, I got this crazy journal. And he says, turn it into a book and send it to me. So <laughs> I was getting divorced anyway. I didn't want to work on the businesses I was in. And I turned it into a book. I edited it a little bit and I sent it to him. Two weeks later, he calls me back and he says, Glenn, donors are pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. He was fat. And he lost 86 pounds over the course of the next year or so. Wow. And we published it and the rest is history. We'll we have like 700,000 readers now, I think, and it, 2,000 reviews. And I think we should be to a million next year sometime. So pretty cool and, and now Aaron, yeah wow thank you for sharing it go ahead, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry no i was just going to say that people don't really know my name sometimes they recognize me but they don't really know my name they just point at me and they go pig guy pig guy <laughs> <laughs> so it's not, not what yeah. you want to happen not what you want to happen on a first date in a bookstore but <laughs> what are you going to do oh well awesome stuff wow incredible story thank you for sharing it giving us the background I just wanted to touch real quick then just for the listener's sake and, and the readers obviously are getting a lot more detail. So I encourage the listeners to pick up your book. But if they could take just one of the ideas, I guess, and just kind of they could simplify in their minds what they do today to, to take action towards sure. binging or, or stop binging and um, you know, move towards what they want to achieve at their fitness and health. What you would do is ask yourself, What's your single biggest trigger food or eating behavior that's causing you trouble? And make one rule 
It should be a rule that doesn't feel too onerous, but you know it would make a difference. Some people will say, I'll never eat standing up again, or I'll always put my fork down between bites, or I will always walk away from the table for five minutes before I have dessert, something like that. And then be willing to define a, uh, a destructive entity inside of you. It's, it's really just a little organ in the back of your head. And you don't have to call it your pig. You can call it your food monster or your food demon or your junkyard dog, whatever you want to call it. But when you hear any thought or image or feeling in your mind whatsoever that suggests that you will ever break this rule, tell yourself that you don't want that. Your pig does, your junkyard dog does, whatever it is. It's squealing for its slop. You don't let the animals tell you what to do. And then that'll wake you up and start to give you some opportunity to make the decision. The other piece of this is if you're going to cut something out, you have to avoid becoming too restrictive. So let's say I was having 500 calories a day of chocolate. I, I don't want to just eliminate that 500 calories right away. I want to get used to not having chocolate. And so there's usually an authentic need behind the craving, usually an authentic physical need. So I'd ask myself, well, should I get a banana kale smoothie? You know, should I have some brown rice and broccoli? What do I really need? so that you don't just try to tough it out, you feed the authentic need at the same time. And then what you're doing is you're training, you're training that craving to move towards the healthier thing. So you, people are frightened of their cravings, but you can't extinguish or retrain a craving without having the craving. A craving is actually an opportunity. Think, oh great, this is what I've been waiting for. Let me go get something healthy right now. Then next time I'll be just slightly more likely to crave the healthy thing and less likely to crave the the chocolate or whatever it is. Ah, makes sense. Okay. Good stuff. Wow. Great tips. Thank you so much for boiling it down for us in those few uh, paragraphs. Appreciate sure. it. Well, uh, Glenn, I wanted to touch a little bit on your influences and uh, you've talked a little bit about your family, but I'm always curious to know a little bit more about, um, you know, so someone, especially like yourself, who's been so successful in the publishing world, who has been the most influential to you to be who you are today and to, um, you know, be such a successful author. Do you mean from a marketing perspective? Uh, just uh, in any regard for your, your work as a whole and also okay. as, you know, a publisher. I've actually hired a, a writing coach for the past um, 12 years. He's a marketer too. And that's been probably the most fruitful thing that I've done to have someone to call me on my BS and help me get outside of my head and be more emotional in the work that I do. You know, originally I wrote like a professor. Originally I published scholarly journal articles and nobody really wanted to read them except for my scholarly colleagues. And I had to learn that to really have an influence in the world, you need to talk to people like you're sitting in the living room and not trying to impress them. It's, it's not like giving a presentation to your professors. It's more like feeding your children. And so when I write, I'm trying to feed my children good food that's going to be valuable to them in life. And I don't worry so much about saying it perfectly. I don't worry as much about the grammar. I fix a lot of that later. But, yeah. you know, my, my grandfather said, um, I don't talk so very many, but I do the best what I are. And I, <laughs> when, when I hear that critic coming in, I, writing a volume and then editing later works out a lot better than trying to criticize it while you're writing it. So, that was helpful. 
had another marketing mentor, Perry Marshall, who told me to bleed on paper. He said, if you want to influence the masses, you have to bleed on paper. What he meant by that was you have to get naked and reveal your deepest pain, your greatest fears, your deepest joy, and otherwise people were not going to resonate with you. He also said, and I, I later kind of coalesced this into what I call the voice of contrarian reason. He also said that what people respond to is a disruptive message in the market. And so if you can figure out ways that the market is being lied to, that everybody's, like every other author, for example, is committing marketing incest. They're all saying the same thing in different ways. Yeah. If you can say something completely different, and I, I've got a very different message. Like I, I'm not telling you to love your inner wounded child back to health. I'm not even telling you to eat good most of the time. People will say, well, just avoid chocolate 90% of the time and eat it 10% of the time. That's a great idea in theory. The problem with it is that when you're in front of a chocolate bar at Starbucks, you have to make another decision. And willpower is the ability to make good decisions. So if you want to eat better, you have to eliminate decisions beforehand. Rules do that, not guidelines. So I'll only ever eat chocolate the last three days of the calendar month. That will keep me having chocolate 10% of the time and not 90% of the time. Well, it makes all my decisions beforehand. So I've had my own therapist who's very involved in modern psychoanalysis. And the years of soul searching that I've done with him have made me very fluid with language and fluid with my own emotions and thoughts and resistances. That's been extraordinarily helpful. You know, probably the dissertation that I did on creativity and um, creativity and dreams. Ross, Ross Levin supervised me on that, and that helped me to understand the creative process, and I use that over the years. I mean, there, there are countless people that I could thank. Yeah. My business partner, you know, this would not be anywhere near as successful without him because it's really hard to be the thing that you're marketing and market yourself at the same, and, and then market yourself. So it's been great to have someone that's, um, that's Joe Avezer behind me like that. So those are my influences, yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing those, Glenn. Appreciate yeah. it. I uh, wanted to ask you if you wouldn't mind sharing a quote that you like, and if there's something that inspires you often or perhaps something that you live by. There are two of them that go together really well. Peter McWilliams, who was a self-help guru in the 80s that nobody really knows about now, said, you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. And that has been so true for my life. I've had to make decisions about what I'm not going to go after so that I could go after something full force. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and it took me a long time to accept that. The other one is by Jim Rohn, who said, a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. And I find that to be extraordinarily true. Every time I add more discipline to my life, I find that I get more freedom. I'll give you an example. I'm a kind of wannabe jazz pianist. <laughs> and the more that I study the scales and the more that I practice the scales, the more I can express my soul by improvising away from them or imp improvising with them. If I just sat down to the piano with any kind of, any kind of discipline or study, I couldn't play the way that I play. When you get in your car, it's the discipline of the engineers that ensures that you can turn the wheel 30 degrees and the wheels are going to turn 30 degrees. Without that, your radius of locomotion would be much smaller. You'd have much less freedom. You'd have a much smaller life. And when I add... A food rule, you, want to, uh, you don't want to add a million rules, but when you take a step up in the rule, when you make it a little healthier, and you feel like you would be giving up something, but you're really not. You're getting so much more. The fact that I, I evolved from not having chocolate during the week to not having it at all, and you think that I would really miss it, but the freedom that I got was immense. And the energy that was 
liberated from obsessing over chocolate, which can now be put into writing or exercising or relationships or, you know, enjoying nature. It's, it's just amazing how much more present and vibrant my life is when I thought it was going to be miserable mm-hmm. giving up the um, chocolate in the first place. And now I don't even want it. So awesome. A life of discipline is better than a life of regret. <laughs> well, never binge again is obviously working for you. <laughs> um, well, I want to ask a couple more questions. Uh, one specifically about book, the book writing process and uh, writer's block and wondered if through your writing now, do you ever still experience that? And if so, maybe you could give the listeners some tips on what might help them through that if they experience it. Am I allowed to curse on the show or no? Sure, yeah. Well, I heard a writing professor say shitty first drafts. Shitty first drafts are some of the best ways to overcome writer's block. So I try to write a thousand words a day, a thousand really crappy words a day (laughs) that I edit it later on. Reason for writer's block, I read an article on this once. It tends to be because there's something, it's, it's not the experience of having an empty mind. There's actually no such thing. Psychologists have studied the mind and we know we can wake you up at any time of day or night and ask you what you're thinking and there's something on your mind. The mind is never really blank. What writer's block is, it's not an empty mind, but the experience of painfully suppressing something that you don't want to say. So often for me, there's a voice in my head that says, oh, you're a fraud, you're inadequate, this is all no good. Or maybe there's somebody that I want to expose that I feel like I shouldn't be exposing. And I I write those things first. And I'm not necessarily going to publish that because that would involve using my judgment and consideration for the other person and everything. But I get it out on paper so that the writer's block goes away. And then another thing that overcomes that is thinking about feeding people rather than impressing them. When I'm at a seminar and people talk about writer's block, I'll say, could you all raise your hand if you have kids? And a lot of people raise their hands and I say, okay, now keep your hand raised if you have something to tell them every day. And everybody's hand stays up, mm-hmm. right? Because we, we all have things to tell our kids, no matter what. We don't have things to tell the professor. We don't have things to tell the world, but we can talk to our kids. So write for your kids. Get it out. You can edit it later. Yeah. Great tips. Wow. Thank you. All right, Glenn. Well, I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. So if there's anything at all you'd like to share and or if there was a question you would have asked yourself if you were in my shoes, what would that be? Well, I'd just like to give them a place where they can get a copy of the book for free, if that's okay. Awesome. Of course. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. So you actually get three things when you go there. Go to neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button, and you'll see a list you can sign up for to get a free copy of the book in Kindle Nook or PDF format. We do have the physical formats, but there's a charge for that. Kindle Nook and PDF for free. When you do that, I'll get you a free set of food plan starter templates. So we've created hypothetical sets of rules for low-carb and high-carb and keto and macrobiotic and point counters and calorie counters. It, It doesn't matter what dietary philosophy you want to follow you can find a starter set of rules to consider modifying for yourself. I say that rather than rules that are going to work for you because I'm not promoting a diet. First of all, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a nutritionist or a dietitian, just a guy who's thought an awful lot about the psychology of eating. And secondly, because if I give you a diet, your pig will eventually say, that doctor's diet is no damn good. We're going to have to find another one. But in the meantime, let's keep binging, right? But if you create it for yourself, your pig won't be able to say that. 
the last thing I'll give you is because I know this sounds really harsh and weird in theory. Um, I know that you must be listening and saying, why, why does Aaron have a doctor on that has a pig inside him? I don't <laughs> <laughs> um, It sounds really harsh. It's actually a very compassionate, life-giving process. And I recorded a whole bunch of coaching sessions, full-length coaching sessions, wow. that you can listen to for free. So you can hear how this restores people's sense of hope and enthusiasm and forward-looking momentum um, in just one session. So neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button, and you're good to go. Incredible. Wow, thank you for that generosity, Glenn. I really appreciate it. Thanks. This was fun. Yeah, this was awesome. I wanted to make sure also the listeners knew a little bit more. You could tell them a little bit more about what you've got going on next. I know you've... you've Well, what happened after I published the book, there are an extraordinary number of people that just write in and say, oh my God, this worked for me. I don't need anything else. Thank you so much. I just wanted to say thanks. Then there are a lot of people who say, I just don't know what to do in this particular situation. Like, what if I'm at home all alone? Or what if I couldn't sleep? Or what if I have my period? Or what if I'm at a party or on Halloween? Like all these different, very specific situations. So I wrote a second book called 45 Binge Trigger Busters. 45 Binge Trigger Busters that covers those very specific situations. And then we opened up a forum and we started doing... I've got a coaching program for people who need more help or want to do it faster. That's really the main benefit is we get it done faster. And we saw, because we've had about 500 clients now, we saw a multitude of different types of rules that people came up with that were more effective than less effective. And we got a sense of the principles that make for effective rules. So I wrote a book called 101 Best Food Rules that really illustrates that. Um, We just published a book on how to stop overeating at night. If you're good all day and you blow it at night. That's my problem. (laughs) Yeah. It it has, um, has a lot to do with how you eat during the day, by the way, you have to be satisfied. Uh, You need to eat breakfast. You got to regulate your vitamin D levels. Uh, Ask a doctor about that. All sorts of things. So I've been focusing on all those specialty problems and writing a book about each of them. And ultimately we're going to put this all into a big software program and make it a social media experience. But, um, uh, that'll be next year. So awesome. Right, right now we're just writing books and coaching people. And we, we also train people in the method. We also have a coach training program. Got it. Got it. Awesome. Well, keep it up, Glenn. Thank you so, so much for uh, your time and just spending it with me and the listeners and uh, giving us some, some helpful tips on how to keep from that binging. So I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate you doing this. Thanks for listening to the Daily Authors Podcast. Be sure to visit dailyauthors.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content.